Hello and welcome to Session 4 of the 4th WSC, The Quality of Healthcare Systems and QI Efforts on Outcomes from Sepsis and Pandemics. We have an amazing array of experts on the topic, and the session is moderated by Gloria Rodriguez-Vega from the University of Puerto Rico. Gloria, over to you. Our session is Quality Healthcare Systems and QI Efforts on Outcomes from Sepsis and Pandemics. I am glad to be joined by Dr. Pierre Barker from the USA and the Institute of Healthcare Initiatives, Dr. Flavia Machado, intensivist in Brazil, um, Dr. Daryl Jones from Australia and an expert in rapid response teams, Dr. Laura Evans from the United States, who will be speaking about the role of sepsis mandate, and Dr. Joseph Bonney from South Africa, who will be talking about the role of emergency um, and digitalization. Um, so I want to remind you that the lectures and sessions that are here are going to be available in the website of the WorldSepsisCongress.com. Also remember that this year we're going to have uh, the option for CME credits. And uh, I want to encourage you to sign the declaration and navigate through the website. Um, without further ado, I'm going to present Dr. Barker and Dr. Barker um, he's going to be our keynote speaker, and we'll talk about how can we define quality in healthcare. Um, he's the chief scientific officer of the Institute of Healthcare Improvement. Um, he oversees IHI's cutting-edge innovation design learning activities and ensuring that we maximize the opportunities for impact and that practical improvement methods and tools are accessible to all who seek them. In an age of global health, I think that's a very good um, initiative. He has experience in designing effective healthcare improvement interventions across a variety of healthcare systems, and he has worked closely with the World Health Organization. So he's going to be talking to us about how can we define quality in healthcare. No, without further ado, Dr. Barker. Thank you very much, uh, Gloria, for this opportunity, and, and hello, uh, everybody. So uh, the question uh, is, how can we define quality in healthcare? And here, uh, right off is the challenge. So uh, the WHO defines quality as the degree to which health service, the health services that we deliver, increase the likelihood of desired health outcomes. <clears throat> but note the choice of the word degree, uh, which suggests that there has always been, and there will likely always be, a gap between the care that we should deliver and the care that we're actually delivering uh, delivering right now. So the question is, to what extent and how can we shrink that uh, quality gap? The first step is to define quality. And ultimately, it's the people who we serve, our patients, uh, who have the final say about what it really means, uh, when it, uh, what it really means and what really matters when it comes to quality. And in this case, uh, shown here, how quickly could I get back to playing my weekly game of bull in the square of, of the French village? So how do we make sure that what matters to our patients translates to what matters to us as clinicians and health system leaders? And in turn, how do we uh, deliver care? Um, the problem is that it's not just the health care providers and our patients who define quality. There are many constituencies uh, who have a say and who are invested in this uh, question. 
So uh, it's not just the patients and clinicians, but managers, administrators, regulators, and policymakers who all have a view on how we define quality of the system. And the question is then, how do we as clinicians build a, a reliable system uh, that matters to our patients while attending to the needs and distractions uh, of those who organize, judge, uh, and regulate our work. As many of you know, uh, the uh, groundbreaking IOM report uh, was issued at the turn of the century, and that gave us a set of parameters uh, that are shown here that define quality. Uh, their definition and the one that has really been pretty widely adopted across the world um, is multidimensional. So it's not just that care should be safe and effective, but in addition, care must be patient-centered, timely, efficient, and equitable. And the failure of any one of these dimensions will torpedo quality. So we can't just achieve uh, one or two of the dimensions. Our care has to really address uh, all six. The challenge for us is to build a system that does all six things well, and the idea is that if we succeed, the distraction will abate from the external forces who judge our quality so that we can really focus on and prioritize the care of the patient in front of us. <clears throat> so let's look at the first, at the core challenge uh, for quality. How well can we take the clinical evidence that's built off the understanding of basic mechanisms of disease and then tested for efficacy in clinical trials, and then use and adapt this evidence to ensure that the work we do is at least safe and effective. Our challenge is this. It turns out that generalizable knowledge generated in clinical trials may not be so generalizable when it hits contexts that are very different to the settings where those clinical trials took place. So when you're handed a checklist or a protocol, even if it's got a very strong evidence base, it doesn't mean that you will succeed in delivering quality of care in your own context and in your own setting. So, and when you're scaling up in an inter intervention, you're likely to encounter an even greater variety of contextual settings. And this means that solving the challenge of scale up is really at the core of equity. Everybody should have access uh, to high quality care. And these two last steps, real life implementation and implementation in the multiple contexts of scale up, uh, are the areas where the sciences of improvement can really be most helpful. And, and the reason for that is that the, these sciences help us to adapt the interventions to local context and ensure the fidelity of the intervention so that it performs as well in your setting as it might have in the original clinical trials where uh, the, the efficacy was proven. <clears throat> so it's reported that it takes about 17 years on average uh, to implement new evidence-based interventions at scale. So this suggests to us that there's a problem in the translation from the efficacy trials to real-life implementation and scale-up. It suggests that the business-as-usual way in which evidence is deployed in clinical settings, uh, which is mostly by issuing checklists and guidelines and clinical training, and even the threat of censure that comes from these outside um, organizations that, that, that monitor and judge our quality, 
um, that they don't achieve uh, effectiveness. The, the system that we have in place right now on its own cannot uh, succeed, as is shown by this unacceptable gap between the, the time that the evidence uh, is established and the time that it is uh, widely used uh, across the system. So the challenge for sepsis care and management is no different. There are two core questions that need answering. The first one here is, can we reliably deploy evidence-based contexts in different settings, in your own setting? The second uh, question is, can we, while we do reliable deployment of evidence-based knowledge, can we ensure that we're tending to the other dimensions of quality? Is it equitable? Are we putting patients at the center? Is it efficient? Is it timely? So this is the core of the work that we do uh, to uh, adapt evidence uh, into uh, local settings. Um, I don't want to overstep my limits of the knowledge of sepsis, and, and I want to try to stay in my own lane for quality. So what I'm doing is giving you an example from another related field that I work pretty deeply in to illustrate the potential for how this might be done uh, in the sepsis world. So I want to give you an example uh, from maternal uh, survival. Huge problem, 200,000 uh, plus maternal deaths each year occur across the globe, and most of those occur in low and middle income settings. This study that I'm going to show you uh, comes from Brazil, uh, which has a 60 deaths per 100,000 live births, uh, which is about six times higher than it is uh, in Western Europe. And this has been intractable. This, this uh, rate of, of maternal death has not changed much in Brazil for the last 20 years. More than a, uh, half of those deaths occur to, uh, from three preventable causes, sepsis, hemorrhage, and eclampsia, which is, um, as you know, uh, uh, hypertension associated uh, with pregnancy. So this study that I'm, I'm showing uh, occurred in uh, Brazilian hospitals, public hospitals, 19 of them that provide maternity services across Brazil. The first step was a commitment uh, to learn and adapt. Learning because um, the hospitals are, are coming forward uh, with recognition of the, that the system that they're using right now is resulting in, in excess deaths. Um, and, and a commitment to adapt because they also recognize that the, the, their context is potentially different uh, from the context of their of the other hospitals that they are collaborating with in a learning system uh, with a common interest to decrease maternal mortality. So they agreed to work together uh, to make care safe for mothers and make it effective, equitable, and patient-centered. Um, next was to go to the front line. On the left, you can see uh, patients who uh, uh, were highly influential uh, in helping staff to understand the conditions um, uh, of patient-centeredness, of patient -centeredness, um, uh, as well as engaging with the staff themselves, as you can see in the, in the next image, as well as uh, managers uh, who are expected to organize uh, the system. Together, they set the same. They said, we could at least cut uh, mortality by 30%. This was based on some uh, uh, demonstration studies that had showed that this was possible, that it that they could take the top three causes of death, sepsis, hemorrhage, and hypertension, and uh, through a, through a very uh, intense 
um, uh, set of ideas and actions uh, reduce mortality by thirty percent over the thirty over the eighteen months that they had committed to working together. Next was uh, to take the evidence and adapt it into a simplified, testable, measurable pathway of clinical care. And this is really a, a key element um, of reliable delivery of care is to make it simple, testable, and measurable by the staff who are expected uh, to deliver it. Four evidence-based steps here, which if reliably delivered to each patient, should drive a progress towards uh, the goal of of 30% reduction uh, in in 18 months. But that reliable deployment of evidence really depends on the environment in which the care is being delivered. And that environment is, is there are some uh, common elements across uh, that environment, but there are also some very site-specific elements. They have the and, and the condition, and we we know what are the key elements for um, delivering safe, effective, and patient-centered uh, care. Um, change will not happen unless we create uh, the conditions for change to happen and paying attention to culture and psychology of change are key starting points uh, of understanding how to take that evidence-based medicine and adapt it uh, to your local context. So you can see here that change is absolutely uh, dependent on supportive leadership. Without supportive leadership, we have seen this as, as probably the primary differentiator between sites that 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 really succeed and, and those uh, that don't. Leaders have to support innovation. They have to allow e- even experimentation uh, of the way in which evidence-based care is delivered and then uh, invest in better systems that can support uh, those uh, ideas that have been shown to succeed and not simply resort to more rules. Learning is informed by effective teams that work together with data systems that feedback their performance in real time. Um, Equity will not be achieved unless we stratify our data and seek out the differences in the way we treat people, and lives will certainly not be saved unless the uh, uh, life-saving bundles that we're putting into place are done so in a timely manner. And finally, uh, we have to engage uh, with patients and families in this process of change, in this process of adaptation of evidence to our local sites. So I'm going to show you uh, the evidence of these 19 hospitals, starting first with uh, risk detection. And there's a causal pathway that I want to take you along from risk detection first off. So here's you can see measurement of the uh, early warning score um, that was adapted for the obstetric setting, uh, making sure that uh, the warning score was was accurately and with high quality um, uh, delivered to each mother uh, on first contact. And you can see great improvement of that uh, very crucial first step of being aware that there's a problem. Second was to deploy the bundles. There were three bundles deployed, sepsis bundle, hemorrhage, and an eclampsia bundle. And you see in the first two, great success in um, achieving very high levels of reliability of the bundle for sepsis and for hemorrhage. But you see not the same for eclampsia. There was, in fact, some uh, uh, reliability of delivery of the eclampsia bundle, but in fact, this dwindled over time. And not surprisingly, we see differences in the outcome. So here's the causal uh, 
pathway that gives us great confidence that, in fact, the results that we're seeing on the right are due uh, to the activities that we're seeing uh, on the left and in the middle. Sepsis mortality almost eliminated. Hemorrhage mortality down uh, very dramatically, but no change in eclampsia mortality. And, and here again is the incredibly instructive um, uh, uh, the value of having the data that links uh, the uh, effectiveness of bundle deployment with the result. This tells us that the problem with eclampsia um, in, sharp, in sharp distinction to the successes of sepsis and hemorrhage were due to the fact that the eclampsia bundle for a number of reasons that are now under intensive review did not succeed in the way that the hemorrhage and the sepsis bundles succeeded. This tells us that this is an implementation problem. This is not an evidence-based uh, problem. Okay, so um, moving uh, finally uh, into, uh, into the sepsis conversation, uh, the starting point for success of the Brazilian hospitals was the presence of, of a well-accepted bundle of clinical interventions. There was strong agreement uh, going out that, that there was a set of evidence-based care elements which provided a, a proven benefit applied together rather than individually. I'm not in a position to weigh in on the merits of the apparent uncertainty of the, of the published uh, sepsis bundles, um, but from a QI perspective, from where I sit, um, moving past this controversy in the content of the sepsis bundle seems like a really important uh, starting point. So could quality and sepsis care follow the maternity model? Certainly, I believe so. And we have seen this in, in multiple uh, other examples. So the first is really organizing around a galvanizing aim, recognition that there is still uh, a, a, a large proportion of sepsis that can be uh, prevented and rapidly treated, and that harm from sepsis uh, can be prevented. This is a, uh, the start really of, of the movement uh, that could then um, uh, coalesce uh, around a, a very galvanizing aim uh, to, to deal with the problem. Second is to decide on the dimensions of quality of care for uh, sepsis. I've focused very much on uh, effectiveness, uh, uh, safety uh, and effectiveness, but um, the Brazilian example, I think, really showed us they 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 looked very carefully at equity by by uh, segregating uh, the data and and making sure uh, that that all populations were equally dealt with. They they dealt with patient centeredness by bringing mothers in uh, to help them uh, with the design. Um, uh, timeliness was obviously a major feature for for the equity uh, bundle and so on. So um, deciding on the dimensions, a really important uh, issue, settling the evidence. The, if, if you're going to be putting your energies into an argument about what should and should not be in the bundle, it's going to be very difficult uh, to work on the real hard work of adapting the bundle uh, to different contexts, which is, of course, the, the key challenge and the key opportunity that uses uh, science of improvement methods. So building a reliable and adaptable clinical model, a clinical model that doesn't come down in a checklist and um, you know, or a single guideline, but but an approach that is demonstrated to, uh, to be used and can be generalizable. The implementation piece of it can be generalizable because in it it has adaptability as a core uh, qualitative feature. And then finally, uh, using uh, a learning system to uh, optimize and adapt. 
and scale uh, the effective model worldwide. So I hope that is helpful and uh, thank you for your attention. Thank you, Dr. Barker, um, for that enlightening uh, presentation. We'll be having uh, questions at the end, so I encourage the audience to please post your questions. So next in line, it's gonna be Dr. Flavia Machado. Um, she is a professor of intensive care and chair of the Intensive Care Department of Anesthesiology, Pain and Intensive Care at Federal University in Sao Paulo in Brazil. She has been working with the Latin American Sepsis Institute since its foundation in 2005. She's also a member of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign um, since its 2012 version. Um, and her main role has been to give uh, input regarding low and middle income um, countries. She's a member of the executive board of the Global Sepsis Alliance, and she has published more than 100 papers regarding sepsis, and uh, she is well known internationally and both nationally. So I will welcome uh, Dr. Flavia Machado, uh, who will be talking about sepsis and inequalities. Thank you so much uh, for the invitation. It's always a pleasure to be uh, joining uh, the World Sepsis Congress. Uh, my job was to speak a little bit about inequalities. Uh, I have no major conflict of interest uh, regarding this talk. And just the, just the fact that I don't want to talk about exactly inequalities, uh, these terms are a little bit interchangeable, but uh, I would rather talk about inequities. Uh, as we know, uh, equally or equal things or inequalities when we don't give equal treatment to everyone, but uh, the concept of inequities, or better, the concept of equity coming from the World Health Organization is when uh, we don't have any unfair or avoidable differences in health, in this case in healthcare, among popula populations that is derived from social, economical, demographic, and geographic uh, issues. So I would rather talk about the inequities that we have in terms of uh, the sexist care. And when we talk about this, we know that uh, inequities are present in all the major factors that determines both incidence and mortality in sepsis. Either when you talk about the cost, when you talk about uh, uh, the healthcare system, or other factors that impact on what we want, which is uh, the best for our patients and for their families. Uh, inequities are not uh, something that is just related to, to our setting, the low and middle income countries. They are everywhere. Uh, we have a lot of papers discussing equities uh, in high income countries, but it's a really very complex issue and we certainly don't have time to go uh, on all this complexity, but I wanted to bring to you uh, this paper that was just published in uh, Annals of uh, uh, in ATS. Uh, and uh, just to bring how complex it is, this is the, uh, they studied the ICU access in California and Philadelphia, and it's about 8,000 septic patients. And they were trying to see the modeling this, trying to see what were the major determinants of uh, equity on access to ICU. And they found out, for instance, that uh, actually uh, patients from Asian Pacific region and Hispanic patients they have more, uh, they were, they have more access to the ICU on that setting. And they were discussing why, why this, they found this result. And one of the potential reasons for that 
was the issues with language. So if you have a, a patient uh, in front of you that uh, you cannot communicate well, sometimes you want to put him or her uh, on the up uh, facility that you can. Or maybe there's a problem with uh, the tools they use to measure severity of illness. They are not adapted to all the races that we have. So just to see how complex it can be to discuss equity. But we know that this is important. It's this, I like very much this paper. It came from the COVID time. They studied 4,000 patients and uh, they modeling uh, these numbers to see what was the relative contribution to the mortality of those patients. And they describe this. We can believe a lot on mathematical models. We can believe a lot on these specific numbers. But the sense of this article is very interesting. Uh, they, they, uh, they, they show that 50% of the deaths could be explained by physiological parameters, but the other parameters that were com contributing to death were related to things that we can do. And actually, regarding treatment, what we can do was really very few. They were determined by quality of the hospital the patients were, by the strain of the hospital, by the socioeconomic status of the hospital population and by demographic and comorbidities that we know are also related to equity problems. So when you talk about QI initiatives, we certainly have challenges in terms of equity. And it came since the prevention on basic healthcare to more known things like access to care access to resource, including here, the team and the well-training teams that we might have better in high-income countries than in our settings, we infrastructure, to the overall body of care that was so good, so nicely addressed by uh, Dr. Bakker, and certainly for, to the, all the issues that we have in our settings regarding for discharge survivorship. So just as examples of difficulties that we have, access to care. This is a paper coming from Gambia. And they show that the incidence of disease is related to the distance that they have to a healthcare facility. Incidence of disease are not related to the distance of a healthcare facility. This is a problem of reporting. So if you are too far from a healthcare facility, you are not going to be picked on a surveillance system. Access to the ICU is an old and uh, a very serious problem in low-income countries, but it's also a problem in our country, in Brazil, and in middle-income countries. And uh, we have this very nicely addressed on this paper that I suggest to you uh, to have a look on. It was a Delphi process uh, among uh, emergency medicine physicians and other healthcare workers coming from low, middle, and high-income countries, trying to set up what is the essential requirements regarding emergency and critical care to call something like a critical care unit or what you have to have on an emergency service. And uh, we know that this is very uh, uh, variable around the world. And uh, if you can have just, for instance, a pulse oximeter, it might make a difference. And if you want uh, to have a look on the systematic review, you can uh, find out, for instance, that just having a pulse oximeter in a place in a low-income country might make a difference in terms of quality because they 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 can triage patients, pediatric patients in this case, to a, a high uh, uh, to a, a facility with better care. 
And as I said, it is not only a problem of uh, low-income countries. We also have this problem in middle-income countries like Brazil. I don't have the time to go through all this paper, but it was just published. Uh, it was our uh, three-day prevalence study in the Brazilian Emergence Department. And I just want to show this picture to you. We asked the, uh, the, 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 the sites to collect the data. Where was the patient after being in the emergency department with sepsis? And in orange here, you can see the patients that were during the whole hospital stay in the emergency department. Let's remember that Brazil has free access, free universal access to care. So a patient will be discharged only if it's considered cured. So 40% of these patients remain in the emergency department. They were not transferred to an ICU or to a ward. And 60% of them actually died in the emergency department with sepsis because they were not able to be discharged. And in this study as well, we were able to show that being admitted in an institution that has a better quality, meaning that the institution was accredited, was associated with a better uh, mortality rates. By contrary, being an institution with low resources was associated with worst uh, mortality rates. So it is possible uh, in a middle-income country like Brazil and others uh, due to uh, quality improvements based on uh, all the implementation science very well described by uh, uh, Dr. Peter. Yes, it is. We have uh, many publications coming from middle-income countries and even low-income countries based on the bundles of the surviving sepsis campaign and showing uh, nice results. These are all observational studies. We don't have an RCT showing uh, uh, that uh, implementing sepsis bundle is associated with improved care, uh, but we do have data. We have data, for instance, coming from the Latin American Sepsis Institute. Some years ago, we published this on intensive care medicine. This is this is a set uh, of private hospitals in Brazil. And uh, we are able to show that implementing these bundles based on highly, uh, on a tool with high sensitivity, what search criteria, we still use search criteria uh, on those uh, hospitals that are able to, uh, and uh, on all the audit and feedback, uh, improving uh, training of the teams uh, and having the champions of all these uh, implementation science techniques to improve quality was associated with a reduction in mortality and improvement uh, uh, on the compliance with the bundles. But the most interesting thing from this publication at this was associated with a reduction in the cost of the patient because it was associated with a reduction in the organ dysfunction. So uh, this uh, uh, this here shows that it was cost not only cost say effective it was cost saving. So this was some years ago, but uh, as you might know, the uh, ILAS is still uh, it's uh, a uh, non-profit organization that it's still training and uh, doing this in Brazil for free yeah, for both private and public hospitals. We uh, collect the data, we report them, we send them quarterly or monthly reports on their compliance with the bundles. And we can see here an example of a fantastic improvement in the bundles. We send them benchmarking with the other hospitals of our database. But yes, uh, there are differences. At this moment, uh, from the last year, and here is our database without the COVID patients, 
We have up to 200,000 patients in the database. But why I'm showing you this? Because we do have differences in our database. When you look, for instance, only, because just an explanation, we do have patients here that were screened for sepsis and there were, has no sepsis. And we have also patients with infection without dysfunction. But here I'm showing for you only the patients with sepsis, sepsis or septic shock. And as you can see, we do have differences that are related to the inequity on the Brazilian healthcare system. So when you look at this, we can see that patients coming from the public hospitals, they are younger and they are much more sick in terms of having a higher percentage of septic shock, a higher surface score, a higher number of organ dysfunction at diagnosis. Those who go to the ICU has a higher subscore and a higher percentage of patients are under mechanical ventilation. So they are more sick. And this is a suggestion. There is an inequity on the access of the system because uh, they, they have delay in reaching the care. And we are talking about our Latin American Sepsis Institute network, which is perceived a biased network because these are hospitals that are seeking for quality improvement. And yet we can also see the difficulties that we have on implementing quality improvement in our public hospitals. We see this with them every time. They have more problems with resources. They have more problems with training, with the shifts and uh, in the staff and with problems in keeping the training updated. So their compliance rate, it's very high, as you can see, because we, we, we use the one-hour bundle since it was launched on 2018. So they have a pretty high compliance with the bundle, but it's lower than the compliance rate of the private hospitals. As it is the mortality rate, but they do have situation. So it is, it is a problem. We do have equity problems in Brazil, in middle-income countries, and I, I am sure that it's even worse in low-income countries. But it is possible uh, doing quality improvement initiatives to reach nice results if you can if you use the right tools and uh, give the right message. So to conclude, inequities certainly plays a major role in sepsis incidence and mortality. It's a complex issue. We need better data on this on our settings, and the, these inequities are major challenges in the implementation of QI initiatives, but it is totally possible. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Machado, for um, bringing a broader perspective on the inequities of sepsis. Um, you mentioned not only race, gender, ethnicity, but also you mentioned about um, distance, and the differences in the economics, you know, pu public versus private. So thank you for that. Um, our next uh, speaker is going to be uh, Dr. Daryl Jones. He graduated from the University of Melbourne in 1996, and he's an intensive care specialist in Austin Health, um, Australia. He's an honorary professor at Monash University and the University of Melbourne, and has previously been an advisor to the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare. He will be talking to us about the impact of rapid response systems 
Um, this is a pre-recorded uh, session, so uh, following will be the video. Thank you. Thank you very much for this invitation to present. Today I'm going to talk about rapid response teams and in-hospital sepsis. The things that I'll be covering will include studies of rapid response teams and sepsis at the Austin Hospital where I work, how I think rapid response teams can improve sepsis outcomes, and briefly I'll talk about sepsis governance and the rapid response team. But I guess firstly I need to talk about what rapid response teams are. Rapid response teams are specialised teams that work in hospitals to review patients who have had their condition deteriorate. And they're activated when a patient breaches predefined criteria that are usually based on derangements of vital signs. And they form part of the responding arm of a broader rapid response system. These are the rapid response team calling criteria at the hospital I operate at. The, as you can see, they're organised into airway, breathing, circulation and conscious state um, and they have thresholds for which the team is activated to come and see the patient. Typically, the patient gets reviewed within 10 minutes of activation. So how common is sepsis during RRT calls? The first study I'm going to talk about was done way back in 2006 where we simply examined the registrar's free text response as to what they thought was the um, impression of what caused uh, the patient to deteriorate. And we found that some patients had more than one criteria, uh, and so the infections were associated with approximately 25% of all the criteria. But when we looked at each of the different calling criteria, you can see that sepsis ranked very highly um, amongst them, typically in the top three. We then sought to do further studies, looking at more detailed analysis of objective criteria of presence of infection and also um, the presence of uh, end organ dysfunction, particularly SERS criteria. Uh, this was done over a three month period in 2011 and we looked for patients who had obvious focal clinical signs of infection, um, or, or an organism grown from a sterile site, whether they had a deep abscess or radiological evidence of a focal infection. As you can see in this slide, the calling criteria for the rapid response team at the hospital clearly exceed those of the SERS criteria. And so it's not surprising that um, sepsis is common in rapid response team activations. What we found amongst these 358 calls was that more than three quarters of patients fulfilled or breached two SERS criteria in the time period spanning their rapid response team call, and that sepsis was present in approximately half of these. Furthermore, hospital and nosocomial uh, related sepsis was present approximately equally, although slightly more were hospital acquired. In approximately 25% of patients, there was no other explanation for the SERS criteria, and the most common causes or sites of infection were the respiratory tract, abdominal cavity, urinary tract, and bloodstream, which is similar to other uh, case series of the breakdown of sources of infection. Patients were on antibiotics in 80% of cases, 
before the call, and antibiotics were modified or escalated or added in approximately half the cases after the review. Patients who had a septic MET call stayed six days longer on average than those without a septic MET call. We subsequently did a prospective study looking at QSOFA criteria amongst 258 rapid response team calls. And we asked our registrars to fill out a simple case report form looking at the worst vital signs six hours before and during the call, whether they thought the patient had an infection, and if so, where was the source of that infection, whether the patient was on antibiotics before, and whether they commenced or changed antibiotics after. And we subsequently looked at lactate levels, cultures, the need for ICU and intensity of ICU treatments, and then hospital outcomes. And just a reminder that QSOFA criteria involve a GCS of less than 15, a respiratory rate of more than 22, a systolic blood pressure of less than 100. And we found that about 40% of patients fulfilled QSOFA criteria, and these patients were much sicker. They had much worse vital signs, were more likely to be admitted to ICU and get vasoactive medications. They were more likely to have escalation of antibiotics, and they were much less likely to be discharged from hospital, and presumed infection was present in up to half of the calls. So how then can rapid response teams improve sepsis outcomes? Well, as I've identified, they have clearly identified septic patients during the aphid limb, and they provide expert responders that are often ICU-based, and patients can be triaged and considered for ICU admission. Um, this might improve better detection, the presence of a senior response and there are smaller numbers of team members to train um, in order to provide that expert response. Because there are fewer people to train, it's possible to have decision support tools at the bedside or on the rapid response team trolley. And this is an example of the um, decision support that we have on our rapid response team trolley. It's essentially uh, a summary of the surviving sepsis guidelines and uh, outlines also um, links with uh, um, antimicrobial stewardship. Uh, you can see the contact details for the infectious diseases clinicians and also when to alert senior decision makers such as the ICU senior registrar or the consultant. And lastly, I just want to talk briefly about improving governance surrounding rapid response team calls associated with infection. Um, it's possible to do regular audits of these calls to look at appropriateness of antibiotics and the timeliness of ICU admission and the commencement of vasopressor treatments. And we've also developed dashboards and push reports to look at um, which patients have uh, presumed infection and sepsis during the rapid response team call. And I've taken away the patient details, but each week, um, we are able to generate uh, a summary of all the patients who had rapid response team calls in the last week and whether they had presumed sepsis. Um, and each of the parent units or the treating teams can look at their own calls to see which patients might have had sepsis. At a national level, we have a body called the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare. And this is similar to JCO in the United States. And they have recently released a sepsis clinical standard, which outlines seven key questions that hospitals 
need to manage, and they're outlined here. So it's important that all hospitals have clinical guidelines uh, for the management of sepsis, um, access to emergency time-critical emergency care, um, management with appropriate antimicrobials, and also having links with antimicrobial stewardship. Um, and then there needs to be coordination within the hospital, uh, both be between clinicians, but also between different areas of the hospital. Uh, hospitals are required to have systems for education of both patients and their carers, as well as obviously hospital staff. But this clinical standard emphasised the, the importance of communicating with transitions of care outside of the hospital, including rehab facilities and general practitioners or primary care physicians. And it also emphasises the importance of, of following patients up to look for long-term survivorship and functional outcomes. At a hospital level, this means there needs to be an overarching body to oversee the management of sepsis and deteriorating patients. And there needs to be governance and policies and procedures with regular audit and quality improvement. And this needs to oversee education and training for um, clinicians in the detection, recognition, initial response and the escalation of care of patients who have sepsis. So in summary, rapid response team criteria provide objective criteria for clinical deterioration, including for conditions such as sepsis. Responders in the rapid response team often come from the intensive care unit. Um, infections are a common cause of deterioration in rapid response team calls, and patients with QSOFA criteria have a worse outcome. Rapid response teams may provide an opportunity to improve the recognition and response towards sepsis. There is a need to have a whole of hospital response towards sepsis, um, not have it just in individual silos for individual teams. And the Australian Commission Safety Quality Healthcare has now implemented a national clinical standard for sepsis management. Thank you, Dr. Jones, for um, your lecture. Um, next in line will be the Dr. Laura Evans. She is an associate professor of medicine at the University of Washington and medical director of critical care at the University of Washington Medical Center. Her interests focus on patient safety and quality improvement, and uh, particularly sepsis as well as preparedness for high consequences infectious diseases. Um, she joined the steering committee of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign in 2012 and is currently the co-chair of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, Adult Sepsis Guidelines, and um, COVID Management Guidelines. She's also the critical care team lead for the NIH COVID Management Guidelines and serves as the counsel on the Society of Critical Care Medicine. She'll be talking to us about the role of sepsis mandates. Dr. Evans could not be with us at this time, so she sent a pre-recorded um, video of her presentation. Hi, everyone. I'm Laura Evans from the University of Washington. It's a real pleasure to join you virtually for the Fourth World Sepsis Congress uh, and talk for the next 15 minutes or so about the role of sepsis mandates or performance improvement mandates in sepsis quality improvement. I don't have any financial conflicts of interest to disclose. And I'm going to lead off to this talk really by kind of going through the case of what's the rationale or the reason for why might we need performance measures. So I'm going to move first 
move beyond sepsis and then we'll come back to sepsis as a whole. But when you look at lots of different areas of medicine about how we provide care, how often do we provide care that's highly recommended, has a fairly strong evidence base, and what, you know, how well do we do as physicians, as providers, as clinicians at providing recommended care. And this is older data from the United States that looks at you know, the, the percentage of patients that receive highly recommended care. So for example, diabetic eye exams or hemoglobin A1C monitoring or colon cancer screening, flu vaccination. And you can see that for all of these areas of highly recommended care, the highest one where we're adherent at providing that recommended care is around hemoglobin A1C monitoring for patients with diabetes. And the others were actually below 50% of the time that we as providers within uh, clinical medicine provide recommended care. When we look more specifically within critical care, this is now a little bit of an older study from 2007 published in Critical Care Medicine that looked at how often we provide um, recommended levels of care to patients who are at that, by, based on the best available evidence at that time, who are eligible to receive that therapy. How often do we actually do these things? And so you can see the final column on this slide is patients receiving the eligible practice by the percentage of eligible patients who did not have a contraindication to that practice. And so the best performing one was in the provision of thromboembolism prophylaxis. In that time, we did, in this study, 95% of eligible patients, again, those without contraindications, received VTE prophylaxis. Stress ulcer prophylaxis, recognizing that the indications may have changed over time, but at that time, based on what the contemporary indications were in 2007, just under 90%. However, once you go down to other types of therapy, look at low tidal volume ventilation, kind of in the middle of the column there. So based in 2007, well after the publication of the ARMA study from ARDSNet, only 53% of patients were receiving um, low tidal volume ventilation who were eligible to or met criteria to receive it. So when we look at kind of uptake of practice, it probably takes about 15 to 20 years for a new therapy or a new evidence base to become a standard of care. It doesn't happen instantly. So I'm trying to paint a picture that we have a gap between what we think we do compared to what we actually do. And that performance measurement in medicine um, is yet not an exact science, that a lot of our healthcare performance is unknown we don't report a lot of it. A lot of studies report poor adherence with sort of commonly recommended care um, and illustrate that there's really wide variability in clinical practice. Unfortunately, as a profession, we're also not terribly reliable at monitoring ourselves. Um, and so if you leave it up to us alone, we're not terribly consistent at doing that and we change practice very, very slowly. Sometimes that's probably reasonable and appropriate, and at other times, just it takes a long time to get routine, recommended therapy up into what we do clinically. So I'm going to spend a couple minutes kind of unpacking this gap between perception and practice. Again, sort of what do we think we do compared to what do we actually do? And I want to show you this slide. It's, it's, a, it's a favorite of mine, and, it, and it's from Conrad Reinhardt and, and many others, um, some of whom may be, may be watching this session, and I hope you are. Um, and this was a survey of 
national therapies in patients with sepsis, looking at the difference between practice and perception. And so you can see where I've circled it in red here, again, coming back to low tidal volume ventilation, that nearly 80% of respondents say that they almost always use low tidal volume ventilation for patients with ARDS. Yet, when you link that to an actual audit of tidal volumes provided, you can look at the, the left-hand side of the slide and that histogram there that shows that the average tidal volume received, sort of the most common ranges of tidal volume were kind of between 8 and 10 milliliters per kilogram predicted body weight. So we say we do it, but the audit didn't support that. And similarly, you say, well, that's also kind of older data, right? That's from 2008. Things have really changed. We've gotten much better. Our uptake is... is the Lung Safe study was a very cool four-week-long international snapshot done by ESICM looking at mechanical ventilation practices. And when they looked at patients with ARDS in the Lung Safe study, and this was um, thousands of patients, 36% of patients with ARDS were receiving tidal volumes greater than 8 milliliters per kilogram. Now, that's probably fewer than on the previous slide from the 2008 practices, but mind you, this is now eight years later in 2016. Again, illustrating that point that it takes a very long time to change practice when we're left to our own devices um, in order to, to encourage practice change. So there are a lot of barriers to implementing change in practice. We are all under time constraints. We have lots of patients to see. We have lots of other things to do. So the pressure that we're under in terms of time, is, I think, is very substantial. There also is the perception that standardized care, whether you call it guidelines, whether you call it protocols, whether you call it bundles, there's also can be a real perception that this represents a threat to our autonomy as healthcare providers, that somehow the use of a standardized operating procedure um, takes away my decision-making as a physician or the decision-making of whomever, whatever um, provider is implementing a process. We all also carry biases into our work, which is understandable and perfectly appropriate. And our, we weight our individual clinical experience very heavily, often more heavily than what the evidence base may say. Um, and we have a lot of challenges, I think, as a population, um, differentiating useful and accurate information versus inaccurate or inapplicable research results. And this is an older slide of mine, but I think this fourth bullet point, this challenges in differentiating useful and accurate evidence and inaccurate or inapplicable research results, is probably more timely than ever when you look at the epidemic of misinformation and disinformation in medicine and in healthcare. And finally, you know, implementing change often takes resources, and most of us operate in conditions of some sort of resource constraint, and so we may lack the resources to really implement change. Some variation in clinical practice is perfectly reasonable and appropriate. Right? We shouldn't necessarily all do the same thing all the time. And my practice should vary from some of my colleagues because clinicians can leg legitimately come to different clinical conclusions on the same patients. There are many areas in medicine with great uncertainty. But I think we always have to ask ourselves, you know, do we as clinicians find information that's or the evidence base and knowledge, do we find that data compelling? Is that enough to potentially change our practice? And it's a balance of what the evidence is, 
how that evidence base is changing, and our own clinical experience. And so that also, I think, represents some of the variability that we observe within clinical practice. So moving on, do performance measures actually improve outcomes, right? And this is what we're kind of rooting at, getting to the root of here. So is performance measures as a tool to try to standardize care, does that result in better outcomes for patients? And not surprisingly, there's some data on this. So again, this is outside of critical care. This is older data from 2006 published in JAMA looking at nine guideline recommended treatments from the American Heart Association guidelines um, for cardiovascular disease. And they had 74% adherence to these nine guideline recommended treatments. The composite adherence, when you looked at each individual measure, varied pretty widely from every, either from 64% to 82%. But when you look at these summatively and said, do you adhere to all of them, the a guideline adherence rate, so when you provide a guideline concordant care, the higher your concordance was with guidelines was a significantly associated with a reduced hospital mortality. So the mortality rate in the quartile with the lowest adherence was 6.3% in this large cohort study. The mortality for those who had highest guideline adherence was 4.15%. So a substantial drop in the mortality rate associated with improved adherence to guideline concordant care. And when you plotted this as a linear regression, every 10% increase in adherence was associated with a 10% decrease in the likelihood of mortality, so a pretty sizable effect size. Similarly, when you look at quality measurement and reporting, this is in the United States, this is a hospital, what was then called the Hospital Compare website, which is from the Center of Medicare and Medicaid Services in the United States and provides publicly reported data to, on hospitals. And it makes it available to everybody. You just get on the internet and you can look up the hospital in the United States where you, you or a family member or anyone, somebody that you know works, and look at what data is publicly reported both to CMS. And the hospital level performance measures include things like acute myocardial infarction, heart failure, pneumonia, surgical infection prevention. And when you look at that these hospital compare data, there is a relationship between Medicare's reported hospital performance measures and mortality rates. Again, we're talking about associations, not necessarily about relationships of causation here. But hospital performance on these publicly reported measures was modestly correlated with a reduction in mortality rate. And so, for example, for acute MI, you can estimate that you would say there were that Medicare through the public reporting saved about 3,000 lives by having performance within the 25th to 75th performance percentile. And so why is this? These are a really small subset of measures. It's, again, it's only looking at a few different domains and there's very little variation in some measures. So for example, aspirin prescriptions after acute MI was so commonly done that there was only 7% difference between the lowest levels of compliance and the highest levels of compliance because nearly everybody prescribed aspirin after an acute MI. So to me, this when you look at this data and you think about it critically, it kind of reinforces these needs to develop meaningful performance measures that are linked to outcomes. And where there's enough um, potential for improvement that you can really move the needle on this proverbially. So if you can really change something, if everybody's already giving aspirin for an acute MI, that may not be a good performance measure because there really isn't a ton of room for improvement there. So moving back into sepsis or into sepsis, 
let's talk for a moment about do sepsis bundles improve care? And I probably don't have to convince a lot of people who are attending this conference that sepsis quality improvement really makes a difference. So this is data now um, published quite a while ago from the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, which was a seven, this was a seven and a half year effort looking at participation in the international quality improvement reporting um, tool and sepsis outcomes. And you can see that mortality diminished over time within the 7.5 years and that the long, the, what you're seeing on the x-axis here is that the longer you participated in this effort, the lower your mortality was. So sort of a more, a higher dose of sepsis quality improvement as measured by longer participation was associated with um, increased improvement in mortality. And again, kind of doubling down on this idea of higher versus lower compliance and there being a dose effect within that, you can see that overall, mortality if you were in low resuscitate low compliance with the sepsis resuscitation bundle overall mortality was 38 and a half percent and if you were in high compliance the percentage was 29 percent and that varied was sort of consistent across areas of the hospital domain whether you're in the emergency department on the acute care uh, floors or in the intensive care unit with them. Similarly, when you look at the New York State effort focused around mandated public reporting of sepsis data for all adults and children with sepsis in New York State, this was published in the Blue Journal in 2018, and it looks at over 100,000 patients in sepsis treated at 185 hospitals in New York. You can see the breakdown here was roughly half and half patients with what was severe, then severe sepsis, what would by sepsis three definitions be considered sepsis. Um, and about half septic shock. Over the period of this study, um, the compliance with the three-hour bundle, the National Quality Forum bundle, increased from 53% to about 65%, and risk-adjusted mortality fell from about just under 29% to about 24.5%. So a substantial absolute reduction in mortality. And this association between reduced mortality was associated with improved compliance with the three-hour sepsis bundle and is associated with a decreased hospital length of stay. So again, looking at this New York State mandated public reporting, this is basically representing the same, what I told you all from the previous slide, but in graphic form here. So you can see on the left-hand side of this graphic that that is bundle compliance over time. This is looking at a three-hour and a six-hour sepsis bundle. So bundle compliance over time of participation increased and the corresponding associated, not causal, decrease in mortality. That was in adults. I'm not, a, I'm not a doctor who takes care of children, but that association is also present in children. So when you look at the same New York State, but this time looking at reported sepsis of, of um, a different bundle, but reported bundle compliance in children, just under 25% uh, of these children were treated with bundle compliance. And if you had completion of the entire bundle within an hour, in-hospital death was less likely for children. And you can see here, we're looking at the time to sepsis bundle completion was associated with increased risk of death. So longer time to completion had a higher rate of death in, in children with sepsis in New York State. So coming back to the performance uh, improvement landscape in the United States, what do we know so far about outcomes with SEP1? So SEP1 is our National Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services performance, per public performance, uh, publicly reported performance mandate for SEP. 
And you can see here, I apologize for the, the red bar that jumped in a little bit early, that on the very top um, part of this table, it says complete step one bundle. You see, this is over 300,000 um, cases of sepsis. 42% um, were compliant with the step one bundle. And in that compliant mortality, the 30-day mortality of those who were compliant was 21%. And the non-compliant, the mortality rate in patients who were non-compliant or treated in hospitals that where the bundle measures were not met was 30.3%. So it has a substantial effect size there associated with being adherent with the step one bundle. So I'm going to wrap up just by saying that I think there is a case for public reporting of performance measures as a tool for sepsis performance improvement. Published studies demonstrate wide practice variation. We know we have poor compliance with known quality indicators, not just in critical care and not just related to sepsis. And that failure to apply sort of known best practice is often errors of omission. It's not because we have bad intent. Um, but rather omission through all of those barriers to implementation that we talked about, and that they are associated with worse outcomes. Some studies clearly demonstrate that we can improve outcomes by increasing compliance or associated with increased compliance with performance measures. And we hear a lot about this concern, again, about this is um, not the right thing to do. And so I think one message that's really, really important to take home from that is if your clinical judgment is that an element of a sepsis care process is not appropriate for that patient, then document your thought process and don't apply it. This does not replace your own clinical judgment and medical training. And so I'll leave you with the kind of idea is perfect the enemy of good. Clearly, we sepsis performance measures and performance managers in general are not perfect, and they never will be. Yet, I think the pressing case for sepsis is the scale of the public health impact and the very, very severe associated morbidity and mortality from this. So I think there's a very strong case for large-scale sepsis quality improvement. But we also have to accept the limits of the data that we have currently for translating knowledge into clinical practice and recognize that that will change over time and that represents success. And that our process to change will take many approaches. Mandates are probably one approach in conjunction with guidelines, cutting edge research, and many other efforts to uh, improve quality. So I will just conclude by saying thank you. I hope this is a great Congress for everybody, and I wish you all uh, a great learning event. Bye-bye. Thank you, Dr. Evans, for that lecture. And uh, last but not least, we have Dr. Joseph Boni. Um, he is an emergency medicine specialist from Ghana. Um, who is also uh, holds a master's in public health and is in the process of pursuing his PhD in disaster medicine, humanitarian aid, and global health. He currently works as the emergency medicine specialist at Confancoya uh, Teaching Hospital. And uh, he is also the founding member of the Emergency Medicine Society of Ghana, current president of the African Federation for Emergency Medicine, executive director of the Young Researchers Forum, He's member of the IPEM WHO Task Force and board member of the World Association of Emergency Medicine and Disaster Medicine. He's also a member of the African Coalition for Epidemic Research, Response and Training and the 2020 Fellow for the SRA Career Developing, uh, Development Fellowship Scheme. 
Um, he has also serves as editor for the Ghana Medical Journal, the African Journal for Emergency Medicine, and the Global Emergency Medicine Literature Review. Um, he is a research fellow for the Global Health and Infectious Diseases Research Group at Kumasi Collaborative Center for Research in Tropical Medicine. And also, um, he's a fun, uh, focused leader, team player, and a wonderful photographer. Um, he will be talking to us about um, emergency medicine and digitalization. Welcome, Dr. Bonin. Thank you very much. Um... And I'm very happy to be here. So um, this afternoon, we will be talking about emergency medicine and its role in, in sepsis management. So the session looks at the quality of um, healthcare systems and then the QI efforts and outcomes of sepsis and, and pandemics. But in this case, we're focusing on what emergency medicine and digitalization um, role plays in this. So I have no conflict of interest, although I have a lot of um, affiliations. So sepsis remains one of the common presentations in the emergency department, and it's a common cause of intensive care admissions, and even without intensive care admissions, remains one of the common causes of deaths in the emergency department. So accurate triage at the beginning um, of presentation, rapid recognition, early resuscitation, early antibiotics, and eradication of the source of the infection is really the key component for delivering the quality of sepsis care that is required. And um, many of us have already emphasized these points. The COVID-19 pandemic continues to show that um, the loopholes in our health systems and where we need to improve quality. And sepsis was one of the places that were greatly affected and sepsis management um, parameters were seen to be lower during the COVID-19 um, pandemic. Emergency medicine in its um, specialty um, definition looks at the, being the gatekeepers and then the entry points for all the acute care patients, along with um, other specialties like family medicine and a few others. But we really concentrate on the acute care management and immediate attention that patients need. This really falls into the span of what septic patients will require when they come in. This picture shows that one in every um, five deaths in the world is associated with sepsis. And surprisingly, 85% of this occurs in low and middle income countries like Ghana, where I am from. But also, um, data also shows that during the COVID-19 pandemic, emergency medicine was one of the strongest places where care was provided. So we do know that whenever there is another pandemic or there's a surge of disease, Emergency medicine will remain one of the strongest points. So quality improvements in emergency medicine is really what we want um, to look for. So in this, we want to achieve closing that gap between what is actual and what is realistic in the service delivery, looking at individual performance and satisfaction and retention of our healthcare workers, which was a big problem after COVID-19, ensuring that there's development, adaptation of information, and then medical products and technology being available, but also being evidence-based and also being able to be used in limited resource settings. Let's not forget the financing aspects of um, quality improvements where it would cost us money to get this done, but also the quality um, of this would, and would be um, reinforced by the leadership and governance looking at stewardship, accountability, and transparency. Quality care starts with emergency care. 
It doesn't matter whether it is at the scene, um, as depicted by this WHO framework for emergency care, during the transport to a hospital facility, or handover in the emergency room, and this continuous care to inpatient admissions, ICU admissions, and so on. So quality improvement points are in multiple systems. So ensuring the patient arrives at a hospital safely, safe emergency care delivery, in case of an infection, avoiding a hospital-wide infection through the ED, and then the provision of quality emergency care um, services, and then looking at the mental health and staff safety, even whilst you go through all of this process. I will share a couple of stories to show the emergency medicine's efforts for QI um, and some digitization in improving outcomes for generally patients in the emergency departments, but also support sepsis care. The first one is the use of mobile technology to improve patient's care. So this was a low um, resource-based um, emergency um, app, which just looked at the entry of number of beds that were available on a ward on two-hour basis to allow for transfer of patients from the emergency unit to the main wards. The aim of this was to avoid overcrowding in the emergency departments. So this graph shows, the blue line shows the demand for hospital beds, the patients that were admitted in the gray line, and then those that were discharged in the orange line, showing a clear disparity between demand and patients being admitted to the ward. After the introduction of the app, we noticed that free beds continue to be available throughout. So the ED overcrowding was not a factor of availability of the free beds, but might have been availability of closing that gap between the demand and admitting the patients to the ward, which could include staffing, um, equipment to, the, to help with the patient's transfers, and so on. Even looking at this, one of the major components that has already been described is it's being equitable and useful in all settings. So electricity usage um, and power outages in being able to charge these mobile devices and internet access was one of the problems in making even this low-tech um, device work in an emergency department to improve the quality of care by reducing overcrowding. The impact, however, looked at good patient flow, internal and external improvements of referral systems, reduction in overcrowding, and it became a tool for improving mHealth and some digitization in the emergency departments. The second story I share to show quality improvements and its effect on care, even in pandemics, is the look at EM care and COVID-19. So interventions by the Confronology Teaching Hospital Emergency Department looked at various aspects of improving pandemic care, which also contributed to the improvement of sepsis care during the COVID-19 pandemic. This included practical protocol development, training, implementation of these protocols, passive retraining and reminders, parallel emergency care provision, and staff care. I will just speak briefly on a few of them. So this shows data collection on the time it took for patients to be seen. Based on this, protocols could be developed to improve the quality of care that could be provided, having parallel care for patients that were not suspected for COVID-19 and patients that were suspected for COVID-19. This could also be extended into the flow of patients in outpatient departments, showing which patients will be moving towards an isolated area and which patients we will receive 
classic um, OPD care, even um, during a pandemic period. The use of technology helped in training and enhancing the number of people that could be trained. In order for you to improve quality, people will need to accept the change and training became a major component of that. Alongside application of online trainings for emergency physicians whose duties might prevent them from being able to sit in in-person um, trainings. Passive trainings included the use of newsletters um, websites to also improve the uptake of such emergency procedures. If they do understand and appreciate this, the flow and improvement of quality will be um, easily recognized by the emergency physician in the emergency room, and this will promote um, the quality of care in the emergency room. Data collected during this period showed that there was very little change between the care that was received by patients who were in isolation compared to patients who were receiving direct ED care. And this graph shows the level of number of patients seen in the various um, emergency units per the South African Triad score and the number that are seen in their um, isolation wards. We will not forget to mention um, social media as a strong tool that can be used for digitalization and improvement of sepsis. The flow of information of people recognizing that they are ill and advising them to go to the hospital is one of the basic things for reducing the delay of care in um, management of sepsis. I will speak briefly about um, two more areas um, as I quickly round up, is the use of registries. The first is to look at the WHO registry for trauma and emergency care. These registries collect very um, little data through um, the electronic medical records or independently entered by research assistants. It helps you to be able to generate such dashboards, which will be able to tell you where you need to improve quality in one area or the other. This has also been implemented in Ghana for the critical care registry, where the number of ICUs is very limited. So critical care patients are seen in the emergency department and quality checks in the emergency departments are crucial where data is collected by research assistants and put into hospital systems improvement programs to be able to improve the care of critical patients um, in the emergency departments. A classic example of the data shows that you have um, sepsis patients being one of the highest number of patients being seen um, in a critical care but comparing all ICUs and this ICU, the level of um, deaths in our ICU seems to be high, giving you quality improvement steps to be able to improve. But what if you're in a system where digitization is not present? Folders will be everywhere in your hospital. Folder reviews and regular mortality meetings can be key to improving this. But I then go to the extent where we look at AI in health and looking at supportive diagnostics, content of medication use and dosages, and timing to see patients alert, which could all be incorporated in um, electronic medical records as we advance across various spectrums of the low and middle income to high income countries to make this possible to all EDs to improve quality of care. In conclusion, a ready ED um, for everyday purposes and treatment of diseases, including sepsis, will be ready for surge and pandemic. Quality care 
um, should be an integral part of emergency departments, whether there are budget lines to pay for data collection or incorporated into electronic medical records will improve the care from home through to ICU and beyond. Adaptational technology to support data collection should be um, promoted and then learning approaches and change management should be an integral part of the provision of sepsis care in the emergency departments. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Bonnie, for that uh, presentation. Um, very enlightening. Um, we're going to go into our Q&A. We have uh, questions from our audience, which we appreciate, and you can continue to post them. Um, the first one will be for Dr. Barker. Um, it says, can you give some tips about post-discharge surveillance? Um, <laughs> that is not, uh, I don't uh, uh, propose that I am a, a a specialist on uh, on sepsis uh, content, uh, Gloria. I would uh, I would defer that. I see some other questions, and Flavia is putting up her hand. Flavia is putting her hand uh, up, so we can so have let's, Flavia. Let's move to Flavia. I'm happy to answer some of the other questions. Sure. Yeah, that, that's actually a pretty good question because uh, we have been worried about the survival of our patients, and uh, uh, now we gratefully we are worried about the survivorship of our patient after hospital discharge. And it's, it's, it, it, it is interesting because uh, on this, we also have equity problems. Because I think that uh, on high-income countries, we are much more advanced on this than on low- and middle-income countries. We have made very few steps on this in our settings. But some of the tips I would say it's to worry about this while the patients are in the hospital. So preparing a safe discharge is something important. Having the family discussing with the patients while they are in the ICU or in the wards and uh, uh, giving them information about what means to be a sepsis survival, it's important. And uh, all the steps that the patient would need on rehabilitation. Uh, on the Latin American Sepsis Institute, we have uh, now a program on this. We have a site that it's in Portuguese, but we also have this in Spanish, which is called Rehabilita Sepsis, meaning rehabilitation in sepsis. And we have there many videos and texts coming from the multidisciplinary team that is teaching families and uh, family supporters and the patients how to deal with the sequela. This is something that we have to do, education, preparing the patient while he is in the hospital. But uh, I would say that in Brazil and other countries, Something that is important is to refer this patient to the basic healthcare facility while they are still in the hospital. So they have to be committed to go back and see a physician or and or a other healthcare provider uh, and have this uh, on two or three weeks at most. We have no evidence that an earlier uh, post or discharge follow-up makes a difference. We have a whole chapter on this, on the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines on 2021, so I would refer you to that. But it's quite important that you have a scheduled meeting with a healthcare provider after before, at discharge to be sure that the patient is going to be followed. Thank you. And uh, we have another question from the audience. I wish we could uh, I could identify who is speaking to do a shout-out, but... Uh, we don't have that. Um, so this one is for you, Dr. Barker. Um, is compliance the major key? Oh, this is Flavius, I'm sorry. Is compliance the major key in countries where resources and equity is not so much a problem? 
But I, that's another good question. Uh, I don't think that compliance per se is a key thing at all. I think that what leads us to compliance is a key thing. So uh, when we measure compliance, what we are measuring is an improvement. It's the capacity of being compliant with. Uh, so sometimes, for instance, just to give an example of what I'm saying, when we have this, uh, uh, we are with our hospitals, and they want to be compliant with the second collection of the second sampling of lactate. So they automatize it. They say, let's go and collect the second sample of lactate after two or three hours. So they're going to be compliant. But they're not measuring any improvement because the patient is not resuscitated at all. So what we show to them is you are collecting a second sample of lactate and the lactate level is still high. So we are not doing anything. You are just being compliant with quality indicators. So I, I believe compliance is the way we measure improvement. So yes, uh, it's a key thing, but we need to understand what is behind being compliant. And it means that we are training everybody, that we are improving quality, that we are being mm. uh, committed to, uh, to improvement. And we can do this besides resource and equity issues. It's not about the number, it's about the outcome. It's not about the number. Um, Dr. Barker, what are some considerations that organizations should incorporate when developing a learning system where the focus is to reduce the risk of going into sepsis? Is it just so this, purely yeah. infection control or something more? Well, if you don't mind, I'll just, I'll just reinforce uh, what Flavia said because um, I think that there is a risk um, uh, of a focus on compliance that is rarely becomes a checklist um, that gets checked off in a in a way that is not connected uh, to the problem. Exactly what uh, Flavia just uh, described, and we see this quite often. The example that I showed from Brazil, um, which showed a, a sequence um, of compliance events where the staff were very invested in moving from recognition to to action and then to reassessment. That is um, makes the measurement of compliance very meaningful for the people on the ward because they know that that they are uh, detecting a, a, a risk. They are de they are detecting deterior physiological deterioration, and they are um, implementing the bundle um, in a sequence uh, that makes sense, rather than just uh, checking a, a box to say yes compliance or no no compliance. So really important, and this relates very much to the second question about the learning system. That is a system that uh, the all the work that we do is is uh, Effectively perturbing the system, so we are we are uh, um, encouraging a change in behaviour, which is then immediately reflected on. That is the definition of the learning system, because if you're just checking the box off for compliance, you're not learning about what's working and what's not, particularly if it's not done in real time. So while I think these look backs on what happened are really important, um, if you want to change a system in a hurry. Um, you have to um, you have to make sure that you're connected to a learning system that feeds back uh, that information to the people who are doing the work. So, uh, and then again, when it comes to the question of whether um, uh, the focus is to re reduce the risk of going into sepsis, each one of these uh, is associated with uh, either the 
base conditions the, um, uh, of, of monitoring uh, uh, your, your patients or the actions that you take uh, that, that follow. So I see it's all part of the same uh, process. Um, but I think I'm glad this uh, topic of um, uh, sort of routine, sort of almost mindless uh, compliance has come up because if it's not connected to a learning system, it's pretty much meaningless. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Bonnie, I see you nodding. So before I ask the questions from the audience for you, um, any comments on this discussion that we're having right now? Yes, I, I think Dr. Parker and, uh, and Flavia had already mentioned it very clearly. The the compliance will be will be more. So I, I spoke more about the registry, where if this data is collected continuously and it's nice in a report, but then there is no feedback to tell people that these are the learning points and a learning system to get people to learn from this, then it, it literally just becomes... Uh, I need to I need to get this done within this period. It's collected, but then the outcome of that in the long term, especially in in low resource areas where these reports might be end up in the the next hospital, there has to be that chain of feedback to the lower hospital that referred in order to improve the care um, that happens there. So the educational system will need to be not only in one facility but cascaded all the way down to the primary care levels. Thank you. Um, so going to your question, um, people might say that digitalization is expensive and technology is expensive and it cannot be applied to limited resource countries. That what would you what would be your answer to that? Well, I do we all do agree that technology can be expensive. Um, but then the the lack of information at some point can sometimes be way more costly than not having this at all. The technology can be really adaptive in the sense that um, the first example I showed where we use just mobile phones, um, normal mobile phones that people have to be able to send a bed state every two hours. All you need to do is enter a word, enter a number, but its effect on the flow of patients is significant. So they obviously can look at sophisticated equipment that can be expensive, very difficult to deploy, complex requires multiple advanced trained people, but it can also be very simple adaptive adaptive in order to get this done. And then have the resources to be able to um, scale in when you cannot afford these. So mortality meetings, regular chat reviews can be used initially whilst you engage to have simple, cheaper technology in your systems and upgrade as your hospital gains the resources for this. One thing we need to be clear about this is that um, the collection of the data then also provides the avenue for you to be able to do research and quality improvement projects from this. Now, research grants will then be able to support the implementation of these technologies in lower middle income countries. And those are some ways you can fund some of these technologies. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, more specifically, uh, we got a question. Um, which software was used to generate the web app? If you can answer that. Wow, that would be quite difficult. As I'm, not, I'm not the techie person, but I know it was, um, it was an um, H, um, HTML um, generation. So probably one of the, the simple HTML um, codes that was used, but I will not be able to give much information about that at that time. I could find out and feedback. Perfect. 
Um, we keep getting questions, so uh, we'll continue the conversation as long as the um, director tells us. And uh, this one, I think, is for all of you. Uh, how can quality leaders best get providers aligned with what are questionable best practices? I don't know if the word is questionable, maybe debatable, um, such as fluid levels provided during sepsis uh, to patients with concerns of fluid overload. Flavia? Well, I I always think that the best way to uh, do this with uh, with people is just to have a very clear and uh, clear conversation on the controversy. So we have to say that this is controversial and uh, that uh, uh, he, and I think that the surviving sepsis campaign just recognizes this when we uh, we we went from a strong recommendation to a weak recommendation, saying that uh, you can keep or not with a chemo. So, going back to the quality improvement thing, for years and years and years, what we have been doing in our network is either you give thirty chemo or you register. The reason why you are not giving it, so you're gonna be compliant anyway. Because we recognize that in some situations, you should not do this if you are assessing your patient properly. So we cannot get away, Glory, uh, from the controversies that we have on the sepsis field. There is a lot of things that we do that are controversial. And we cannot let the controversy get, uh, uh, we cannot let the controversy uh, uh, put away our efforts on quality improvement. We have just to recognize the controversy and deal with it. I think it's just like Dr. Evans said, you know, there is still clinical judgment. You know, that's the reason they're called guidelines and they're called goals and, you know, so I think that was uh, a good message from Dr. Evans also. Um, the other one um, we're getting is, what do you think is best practice in dealing with health inequalities in low resource settings, where where we have out of, where we have out of pocket expenditure and poverty, poor access and more? Maybe Joseph can take this. Joseph, sure. Um, so it it really becomes a, a big a big issue where your indicators of health are sometimes just thrown out the window because there's there's difficulty in accessibility, affordability, and all the other aids that come with the provision of, of good care. Um, it then makes it very difficult for you to have any standard for measurements. If your, your patient is unable to afford the medications when there's out-of-pocket payments, and that it then just makes it difficult for you to start a measurement that has has a baseline. Um, along with this um, will come the compliance issues. It will be very surprising that people that can afford and buy the medications are still not going to be compliant with the medications. So the um, out-of-pocket payments, um, poverty becomes one of the biggest hindrances for management of patients um, with sepsis. With this said, um, it however has been noticed that most um, places that practice um, emergency medicine in low and middle income countries are able to provide some form of coverage for the first 24 to 48 hours through um, government interventions and social policies um, to be able to give some level of care 
in the initial initial um, period. So we will count on improvements of these, but um, it remains the fact that poverty and out-of-pocket payments is one of the biggest hindrances for the management of sepsis and all kinds of emergencies. Thank you. Um, following up on that, what do you think are um, coalition-based interventions? Uh, how will they help solve the healthcare inequalities in sepsis? Um, I could start uh, and then maybe I could have um, Dr. Dr. Parker join in for yeah. this. So uh, there has been um, a lot of controversies uh, about coalition-based um, care and how the coalitions, although it's supposed to be made up of people from all around the world, still has uh, a bias towards some level of um, high level income, um, um, has some level of high income bias. So what happens in this case is that the coalition should be able to depict and um, design programs that can be affordable to low and middle income countries, but probably have stepwise approaches in how um, care can be provided as the expenses get more or as more um, income is provided. Do you request for, do you have a, a protocol that says you need lactate um, every 12 hours where um, this will not be able to be affordable in low mid middle income countries? Are there other factors that can be used for um, quality improvement um, indicators in these areas? So. I do believe that um, coalition um, guidelines for management in low and middle income countries are very good. Um, it should, however, have um, graduated levels of care and clearly states where if this is available, these are principles so that people are not tied in into guidelines that they cannot follow based on their resource levels. Thank you. Um, we're going uh, way over our time, so I'm going to ask... Uh... Dr. Barker, two short questions regarding rapid response teams, since we don't have um, our speaker with us, uh, Dr. Jones. One of them was, who, uh, who should be in your rapid response team? And do most hospitals around the world have rapid response teams? <laughs> I can't definitively answer either, but I, but I, I am aware that, and Dr. Jones mentioned in his talk, that most of the rapid response teams that uh, he described uh, came from the ICU. And this is pretty typical uh, that that's where the rapid response teams come from. And they are, they are formed from the, what you would expect, uh, some combination of, of a, a physician, a, a, a nurse and a respiratory therapist. Um, so I think that that's, that's fairly standard now uh, across, uh, across the world as to where, whether or not most systems, I know that in the United States, rapid response teams have uh, become uh, pretty standard um, uh, across um, major uh, hospital systems. So I think since their uh, adoption, uh, they have become uh, very popular. I will say, though, um, and this comes back to our conversation about um, uh, the compliance issue, rapid response Teams uh, got a, a uh, have had a bit of a, a rocky ride in terms of the evidence base that is that has emerged, and very interestingly, uh, rapid response teams uh, succeed 
when they take care of um, the psychology of change uh, and don't uh, get imposed as a as a uh, a set of of um, uh, required interventions. This is a very um, communication and uh, social in intervention uh, based um, uh, intervention. Uh, and I think the Canadian experience particularly suggests that you you cannot um, expect adoption of a complicated um, intervention that has, has a particularly strong social component uh, if it's just imposed as a um, as a checklist or or, or um, without uh, due consideration for what does this look like in my system? How does it need to be adapted to where I work? Uh, so a very important uh, example of what I was describing in my talk. Um, so to wrap up, I'm going to ask each one of you to give us a one-word um, take-home uh, message uh, in one word, okay? Uh, Dr. Machado? I'll take two words. Keep going. Thank you. Dr. Barker? Adaptation. Dr. Boney? Dr. Parker just, just took my word from me. <laughs> uh, yes, so um, I will go with I will go with um, gradual advancements and LMIC focus. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Machado, Dr. Barker, Dr. Booney, for making my job easy. I appreciate um, your participation in this session. Also to um, Dr. Evans and Dr. Jones, who were not able to be in our live presentation, but also their uh, presentations were very uh, informative and educational. Um, I also want to thank uh, the audience uh, for such wonderful questions and making this discussion as uh, fruitful um, as it was, and uh, to our sponsors, uh, with whom uh, we would not have been able to have uh, this free access well, now with CME. And uh, I want to remind the audience that the sessions uh, you're we're presenting live, uh, but if you cannot you listen to them all today and tomorrow, they will be uh, released weekly on the YouTube channel and also starting next week as a podcast. And uh, remember to log into your page, uh, sign the sepsis declaration, and also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So thank you all and uh, have a wonderful uh, World Sepsis Congress. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening and thanks to everybody who helped putting this together. Session 5 and 6 will be out next Tuesday, May 16th. See you then.